As professors who specialize in conspiracy claims, we know the importance of looking to the skies. That may be where the sun shines, but there's all sorts of shady business going on up there as well. Cold War spy planes, UFOs, UAPs, Planet X, the moon. There are a lot of conspiracy theories hanging over our heads. And so today, we will tilt our heads back again to examine the little white lines that crisscross above us and ask if there is something legitimate behind the idea of the chemtrail. This is all a test. This is all a test. This is all a test. Hello and welcome to another episode of The Uncover Up. I'm one of your co-hosts, Lee Kunla, and with me, as always, is the indomitable Nathan Radke. I am indomitable. You are. Oh, wait. No, there was a, a couple of years ago, I think I got, I was got dominable. dominable. I got dominable. I got dominable, but, but for the most part, I remain dominable. <laughs> I detect a conspiracy behind the uh, show that we're doing because Nathan, as our longtime listeners will know, will jerry-rig an airplane reference into almost any episode. Regard, I think it came up in the Bigfoot episode, like he manages it all the time. And so this time, we're actually doing an entire episode about just one part of the airplane. Yeah, and weirdly, I think I'm going to talk less about airplanes in this episode than I have in other episodes. <laughs> but it is still exciting to have an opportunity to discuss aircraft, as always. And you know what else is interesting about this particular conspiracy we're looking at? This one shows up in the mid to late 1990s. And I realized as I was researching this, this is a time period that we have not spent much time on as a podcast. That's right. It doesn't feel like a particularly conspiratorial time. We did have Princess Diana. We and did Kurt have Kurt Cobain, exactly. When I started thinking about it, the 90s were actually a very strange time from a conspiracy standpoint. I mean, look at it this way. The Cold War was on pause, and I think that's maybe why we don't spend much time. We're pretty Cold War oriented. Yeah. And the Cold War was on a temporary hiatus in the 1990s. Yeah. I mean, it's back now. Yeah. <laughs> but in the 90s, it had gone away. But, but think about what that meant. With the Cold War on pause in the 1990s, there was like a need for a new enemy. The Soviet Union had collapsed, and we were in a temporarily unipolar world. We had gone from a situation where there was two superpowers to a situation in which there was just one. Uh, in addition, in the 90s, you had an increase in public internet use. That's when the internet took off. I first checked my email in 1994. And there was a rise in anti-government militia movements. 1991, we have the release of the book Behold a Pale Horse by Milton William Cooper, which is something that we need to do an entire podcast on eventually. Uh, I would also like to do an episode where we talk about the importance of that book to the, uh, the hip-hop movement of the early 90s because that book was hugely influential in early hip-hop. And this was basically a book that argued that uh, there was a massive conspiracy, government conspiracy to conceal aliens, the, the black helicopter stuff that shows up in the 1990s, all of this sort of anti-government paranoia, a lot of it starts off with this book by Cooper. That's not the only thing causing anti-government paranoia in the 90s. Ruby Ridge, the Ruby right. Ridge murder, 1992. The Waco shootout, yep. 1993. Oklahoma City bombing, 1995. Uh, I mentioned the black helicopter stories. 
they had been underground since the 1970s, but it's in the 1990s when they break through to the mainstream to the point where there's even a Republican congresswoman named Helen Chenoweth who claims in 1995 that black helicopters were threatening her constituents in order to enforce, of all things, the Endangered Species Act. (laughs) And think about what in the 1990s is happening in pop culture. What's on our TV screens in the 1990s, which is just the pinnacle of conspiracy culture? X-Files. Yeah, that's so 90s. It's so 90s. That was, was such a great show. At least it started out that way. And all of that was in the 90s. Now that we've been studying this, I'm actually kind of surprised that we haven't spent much time in the 90s yet, and I, I predict that in the future we will be. So you start us out in the 90s, I'm guessing, because today's conspiracy has its origins there. Is that right? Yeah, exactly. This conspiracy shows up around 1995, 1996. It starts showing up on talk radio programs where you have people being interviewed on those sort of late-night AM radio programs. Hey, I think we've been on one of those programs. (laughs) We have been on those programs. (laughs) I'm on those pretty much every week. And making this claim that, well, here's basically the claim that's being made. If you look up on a clear sky in any major city, you're probably going to see a few white strips running along the sky, following closely behind high-flying aircraft. And sometimes they disperse almost immediately, and sometimes they stick around for a while, and sometimes they they appear to spread out and almost transform into like a cirrus cloud. These white lines are basically the focus of this particular conspiracy, which, as we said in the uh, teaser, is called Chemtrails, a.k.a. SLAP. A.k.a. SLAP. S-L-A-P. Secret Large-Scale Atmospheric Spraying. Wow. Yeah, SLAP. That's a cool acronym and one I did not come across. Yeah, I was so pleased. I was like, oh, I can hardly wait to tell Lee about SLAP. (laughs) So the claim is that there's something sinister and deliberate about these white trails. But here's, I mean, when we try to talk about this conspiracy hypothesis, we immediately run into a problem. And it's a very specific problem. Because even in the conspiracy hypothesis about about these white lines in the sky, the precise nature of exactly what's happening is a bit unclear. And so immediately, right from Jump Street, we have an issue. You, you can tell a lot about how well-developed a conspiracy claim is by how early in the description of the alleged conspiracy that speculation starts to emerge. The better the information you have, the more quality information you have, the later speculation has to show up. So if the speculation shows up immediately in the hypothesis that isn't a good sign. I mean, look at, look at the, the, the Tuskegee syphilis experiment. How yeah. certain are you that that happened? I'm pretty certain that that happened. Yeah, that's basically a 100%. Yeah. We know what happened in that event. We know that black men in Tuskegee were allowed to die painfully from a completely treatable disease so that the effects of the disease could be studied. So we know what happened. Yeah. We know who did it. It was doctors associated with the U.S. Public Health Service. Uh, We have names. We have documents. There's no speculation there at all. What little speculation that remains concerns the extent of the damage that was done and maybe the motivation of the criminals who carried it out. Mm. So there's an example of a true conspiracy, almost no speculation in it at all. Now look at the JFK assassination. We know what happened. JFK was killed. But then the speculation shows up regarding who carried it out. Was it the mob? CIA, FBI, KGB, LBJ. 
But we still get, you know, fairly far into that story before that speculation shows mm. up. With chemtrails, like, again, right from jump, the speculation starts. Because there's agreement amongst conspiracists that something is in these white trails. There's no consensus regarding what specific sinister action is being taken. But there are three main categories that the speculation falls into. They could be for weather control. They could be for population control. And they could be for mind control. Okay, so so the idea is planes are flying overhead and they're spraying stuff out the back. Maybe which, a chemical agent, maybe a biological agent. Okay, and this is meant to either control the weather, uh, control the population. What that means is maybe like causing sterility mm-hmm. in, in the large uh, segment of the population. Or maybe disease and death. Right, okay. Or mind control. So I'm guessing something like docility, like generating a kind of um, acquiescence within the population, making them mm, willing to accept things, making them docile. Is that what we're thinking here with mind control? Generating acquiescence. Yes. Wow. I feel like we just like, we just went up a level as far as podcasts go. That was... I'm not saying many words today. So the words I'm saying... So the ones you're choosing are... They got to have a lot of syllables in them. Yeah, exactly. As you say, that's sort of what's being suggested is, depending on which person you're listening to, the airplanes are deliberately spraying chemicals or biological agents that maybe are to control the weather, maybe to control the population through lowering the birth rate or even killing people off, or maybe some kind of generation of acquiescence. (laughs) Sometimes when we encounter wild and implausible conspiracy claims, we can check if there's any kind of precedent for this. And sometimes the wild and implausible conspiracy claims turn out to be true. You started, Nathan, um, by doing a bit of this work and talking about the Tuskegee syphilis experiment. And if I didn't know better, and you presented me with just a thesis about what had happened, I would be aghast. I might not believe you. I mean, it's it seems... I mean, pretty... you certainly wouldn't want to believe it. No, and it's exactly... And it seems... It just seems so outrageous. In the few years now that we've been doing this, encountered over and over again, really unbelievable conspiracies uh, that turned out to be true, or at least to the point where people were actually trying to go about making this happen. We've talked about nuking the moon, for example. So is there any historical precedent for either the government or maybe other agencies, but let's focus more on the government, trying to do weather control, population control, or mind control? Do any Is there any precedent historically for any of that ever happening? Let's, let's go through it. All right. We'll start with weather control. That seems like maybe the most plausible of those three hypotheses. Okay. So the claim is that hidden within the trails is some sort of mechanism to manipulate the weather. Well, this isn't the only weather manipulation conspiracy we've come across. Uh, At some point, we're going to do an episode on HARP, uh, which is that massive project in Alaska, which reminds me uh, at this point... Don't we have a listener who sent us some pictures. Yeah, I've been trying to figure out how to plug this guy because his work is so excellent. If you are interested in this podcast, you're probably going to want to check out the Instagram page of Atomic Aerials. That's A-E-R-I-A-L. 
S. Aerials. Aerials. Atomic aerials. And he actually went up and took some photographs of Harp Project. And, and, and we were actually a little worried. Yeah, a little concerned about his safety, but he seems to be fine. <laughs> uh, we haven't talked much about Harp, but we will in the future. You ever heard of a guy called Wilhelm Reich? I have heard of a guy called Wilhelm Reich. Yeah, he was the cloudbuster guy, the orgone generator guy. Right. We'll have to do an episode on that. That's going to be a wild and strange episode because he was a wild and strange guy. But these are kind of more far out speculative conspiracies. I'm going to tell you about one called Project Cumulus. Comes out of the UK in 1949 to 1955. And this one's legit. So this was a, a cloud seeding experiment carried out by the RAF, the Royal Air Force pouring dry ice and salt into clouds from aircraft. Those are the Brits. Those are the Brits. Okay. Yeah. After World War II, you have the British Air Force dropping dry ice and salt into clouds. Well, is this a cloud seeding experiment? Exactly. This, this is an early about. cloud seeding experiment to see if you can generate rain from rain clouds. Okay. So you might ask, well, why would the Air Force want to do this? Well, the list of possible uses for this program included bogging down enemy movement, incrementing the water flow in rivers and streams to hinder or stop enemy crossings, and clearing fog from airfields. And honestly, being able to control the weather would be a badass military move. Oh, yeah. Right? I mean, that's just, you're, you're kind of the boss if you could make it rain or, or not on command. Well, I mean, you're this close to being Thor at that point. Right. Now, I actually think I was, as you were talking, I, we had this summer uh, across North America, but especially also in Canada, some really tremendously terrible forest fires. I was camping in Ontario and I was uh, having breathing issues from forest fires that were happening in BC. They were so big and there were so many of them. And something like this you think, wouldn't it be amazing if it would just rain for a couple of days and put out these fires? So this was, seems like a very practical implementation of something like this. Like, it would be useful if we I, could I do think it. this shows uh, the listeners the decency, the gentle decency of Lee, who, <laughs> who hears about this, this project and thinks, oh, this would be great. You could put out forest fires. You could save the, the squirrels and the, yeah. and, the, and, the, and the bears and the moose. Who would want to save squirrels? But at the same time, you were also in Germany recently. Yes. And what had happened in Germany weather-wise? Well, you would want to stop the floods. Okay, so yes, there were some very tremendous floods. And I had heard about this while I wasn't in Germany. And you think, well, okay, floods. And when I was there... I saw a lot of the news reports and it was really terrifying. I mean, it's like a wall of water that would completely flood somebody's basement, like from, from the floor to the ceiling of their basement would be filled with water. Um, people died, homes were destroyed. And yeah, it was pretty terrifying. But again, if you would be able to say, have the rain clouds drop the rain before they come to urban areas, very populated areas, then you would be able to mitigate the worst of those floods. Or what else could you do? You could cause floods in enemy territories. Yep. And it would, and well, we'll get to that. See, Nathan is destroying my, my gentle care for squirrels and forcing me to think. You could drown those squirrels. <laughs> so the, these documents that I was looking at also talk of rainmaking have a, having a potential to explode an atomic weapon in a seeded storm system or cloud, which would 
produce a far wider area of radioactive contamination than in a normal atomic explosion. So you set off an atomic explosion in a rainstorm that you made, which would then amplify the destruction of that wow. of the of the fallout. Okay. I mean, we're at this point we're really far from saving squirrels. Right. But nonetheless, you make the point that th- th- there would be a lot of incentive for serious scientists and, you know, military engineers and strategists to get behind at least testing something like this. Oh, absolutely. And they did test something like this. And after they tested it, there was a flood in an English town called Devon, like a massive flood that killed 34 people. Wow. So the question then, of course, is, was that flood caused by this testing? And... Just because something happens after something else, we talk about this all the time, doesn't mean it was caused by something else. Right. That's the classic post hoc ergo propter hoc fallacy. And similar floods had occurred in Devon in 1607 and 1796. And the rivers were already swollen at the time. So it was kind of vulnerable to a flood. But I will say that the RAF stopped the experimentation after that incident. Right. Okay. So I, I haven't looked into it enough, and I, I'm not knowledgeable enough about that history to know whether that event was caused by the testing. Yeah. But, I mean, there's a possibility that it was. Okay. Well, I, I did um, some research into some more modern attempts to do this. So apparently China tried to do some cloud seeding during their hosting of the Olympic Games so that the opening and closing ceremonies wouldn't be disrupted. The idea being that you would get approaching rain clouds, um, just as I said earlier, to drop their rain before they enter the populated region. Just this year, in 2021, apparently the United Arab Emirates also, with drones, experimented with cloud seeding. And there was a rainstorm that uh, followed one of their experiments. But just like you're saying, Nathan... It's unclear what the causal relationship is. Did the seeding actually cause the rain to happen? Or was it that these were already rain clouds, essentially full of rain that would have maybe dropped their rain anyway? The understanding that I've walked away with is that there is debate within the scientific community as to whether this is a legitimate phenomenon or whether you can account for it within statistical normally occurring statistical variations and so it is unclear but if you can do it you can't do it in a very impressive way like i read somewhere um, maybe you could increase the rainfall for the year by three percent like and that's sort of an upper limit like that's best case scenario if the science really pans out and if it really works out So, you know, 3% is something. And again, if you're talking about the rainfall for an entire year and you would be able to use that to put out a forest fire, maybe, that could be very convenient. But it doesn't seem like it has the kind of utility that, if I say weather control, you know, that, that you might imagine being able to just like make rain happen whenever you need it. Yeah, the weather system is such a complex arrangement. It's so chaotic. I mean, this is where we get the idea of chaos theory from, this idea that like a a butterfly flapping its wing will, as tiny as uh, an impact as that might have, in a complex system, it can eventually have this outsized outcome 
where it changes the direction of a cyclone like months later. And that's why weather prediction is notoriously bad. And it's not because they don't know what they're doing. It's because they're dealing with chaotic systems. And chaotic systems tend to kind of produce radically different results from very similar starting conditions. Yeah, I mean, it would be very hubristic. We're really throwing around the the words. I've I've got to up my game. So it would be quite hubristic of us as humans to assume that we could shape the weather to our will. But if I know anything about us as humans, you know what we are? Hubristic. We are hubristic. (laughs) And obviously, I know what hubristic means. But for the listeners who might not know, how would you define hubristic? I'm wondering if it actually even is a word. Well, hubris is this sense of... Imagining yourself able to do more than you actually can. Being rather overconfident in your abilities. That's describing the humans. I'll give you an example. (laughs) 1968, Johnson's presidential science advisor, Dr. Gordon MacDonald, writes a paper called How to Wreck the Environment. Great title. And he says, quote, Operations producing such conditions might be carried out covertly, since nature's great irregularity permits storms, floods, droughts, earthquakes, and tidal waves to be viewed as unusual, but not unexpected. Such a secret war need never be declared or even known by the affected populations. It could go on for years with only the security forces involved being aware of it. The years of drought and storm would be attributed to unkindly nature, and only after a nation was thoroughly drained would an armed takeover be attempted? Right. Well, I mean, wow. Again, yeah, uh, look, if you could, if you could actually uh, weaponize weather in that way, then whoever does it first has a real advantage. Especially, actually, I hadn't thought of the clandestine aspect of it. Yeah. To be, because there's, uh, you know, there's fingerprints on an atomic bomb, but if you can... But not on a tsunami, necessarily. No, Exactly. Yeah, that's I mean, that, that's a chilling passage from yeah. this presidential advisor. Also chilling, I'll give you a copy of this this paper later, because he also discusses possible mind control applications hmm. of lightning storms. Oh, It was a wild ride. You know who was interested, though, in definitely trying to weaponize the weather was the U.S. Air Force. Sure. This is also 1990s. In 1996, the U.S. Air Force has a research paper called... Weather as a Force Multiplier, Owning the Weather in 2025. This has got to be one of the weirdest things that I have read from the American military. And that is saying something. Yeah, because we've read some stuff. Yeah, we have read some stuff. And, and this is, as Nathan said, this was a hypothetical scenario. In fact, why don't I read the, the summary of it? So this is the executive summary. Uh, paragraph one. In... 2025, U.S. aerospace forces can, quote, own the weather, end quote, by capitalizing on emerging technologies and focusing development of those technologies to warfighting applications. Such a capability offers the warfighter tools to shape the battle space in ways never before possible. It provides opportunities to impact operations across the full spectrum of conflict, and is pertinent to all possible futures. The purpose of this paper is to outline a strategy for the use of a future weather modification system to achieve military objectives rather than to provide a detailed technical roadmap. Yeah, this this paper is really weird. 
<laughs> so yeah, so they're, they're basically imagining a future scenario in which being able to control the weather would help them win an otherwise unwinnable war. And it's written in such an odd way. Sometimes it's written as if they're in 2025 and talking about what they presently have. Sometimes it's written in a way that they're looking forward to 2025, what they might have. There's a few times when I stopped and I was like, wait, am I being taken for a ride here? Like, is, is this a hoax? But um, sadly, no. But, but no. <laughs> I mean, as it says... A high-risk, high-reward endeavor, weather modification offers a dilemma not unlike the splitting of the atom. While some segments of society will always be reluctant to examine controversial issues such as weather modification, the tremendous military capabilities that could result from this field are ignored at our own peril. From enhancing friendly operations or disrupting those of the enemy via small-scale tailoring of natural weather patterns, to complete dominance of global communications and counterspace control, weather modification offers the warfighter a wide range of possible options to defeat or coerce an adversary. Yep, I'm sold. Yeah. But why are we talking about this? So this is something that the Air Force commissions in and publishes in 1996. Mm -hmm. Okay, it's, it's a weird document. Well, I think all of these examples seem to indicate that the idea of weather control is not beyond the realm of possibility. Right, okay. And that we would have to definitely argue that certainly there is a military interest and has been a military interest for decades into figuring out how to control the weather. Right. And and I think there's also specifically a causal relation between the publication of this particular report and the conspiracy that now emerges in 96 and, and, and onwards, which uses this sort of as its starting point. Namely, you can't trust the military when it comes to airplanes and the sky because they're they they got plans that are scary and dangerous yeah uh, there's an absolutely a reason why both the chemtrail conspiracy and this paper come out in around 1996 right and it's because this paper drove a lot of conspiratorial thinking right all right okay. so we've started off by saying okay we've looked at weather control and we've said yeah maybe so now let's look at population control. Population control. So the claim is, hidden within the trails is some sort of biological or chemical agent that is engineered to reduce the Earth's population, either by rendering people less fertile or by causing disease and death in the people exposed to the chemtrails. That would be wildly unethical. Have there been examples of the American government, for example, test spraying biological agents on populated areas? No. Surely not. Never. No. Um, Wait, yes. <laughs> well, and, and in fact, we, we did a, um, a podcast on that not too long ago called Project Sea Spray. And if you want to know more about it. Now, it wasn't actually a population control experiment, but it was one where the United States sprayed the the um, citizens of San Francisco with an agent that ended up it was supposed to be benign and it, it for the most part was but they certainly did spray people without knowing it or that is the citizens who were living there did not know that they were being subject to an experiment and people showed up in the hospital yes and a guy died one guy died that's right but 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 clearly that was a one off. Yes, it was. Uh, and then they had a bunch of other one-offs uh, as well. <laughs> in 1966, the American government performed a secret test in the New York subway system where they filled light bulbs with bacteria and then smashed them inside of subway cars to see how people would react, 
and also to see how that bacteria would then spread throughout the subway system. And what they found was New Yorkers don't react to much on the subway, hmm. but that it was a very effective way of transmitting that bacteria throughout the city. Wow. Do, do we know if anybody was harmed as a result of that? As far as I know, nobody was harmed in that one. Okay. So they got the, the correct bacteria to test yeah. this time. That's a better bacteria. <laughs> now, of course, there have been lots of rumors that biological warfare was used on the North Koreans during the Korean War. Yeah. Now, we are always a bit careful about this one because the one of the main sources of evidence is um, a not very reliable North Korean government. But then on the other hand, just because someone's a jerk or some state is, you know, dangerous uh, and otherwise untrustworthy does not mean that all the claims are. So, you know... And if anybody had evidence for this, it, it would well, be the people that were allegedly poisoned by it. Exactly. So it's a, it's a, it's a tough one, that one. We put it out there... We'll look know. more into it. There is, on the other hand, there is absolute evidence that chemical warfare was used on the people of North Vietnam. Yep. Agent Orange. Yeah. Agent Orange, a chemical herbicide and defoliant was sprayed all over North Vietnam. It, the purpose of it was to try to destroy the forests. Mm. And as bad as that already is, Agent Orange also had, uh, it, it caused terrible birth defects, stillbirth, cleft palates, polydactylism. What is that? Extra fingers. Okay. I mean, that's when you know that a chemical is, is wreaking some havoc. Respiratory illnesses, lymphoma, nerve disorders. And it showed up both in the Vietnamese population against whom it was used, and also the population of American veterans oh, who yeah. were incidentally exposed to it as they were using it. It also showed up in the population of New Brunswick, Canada. Really? Where the U.S. military had been testing it uh, secretly. Okay. To the point where in 2007, the Canadian government had to pay out lump sums of 20 grand to victims of this spraying. These are good examples, certainly, of the willingness of the American government to either experiment or, in a time of war, to engage in chemical warfare. So this does happen. Do we have, though, any examples of something closer to the spirit of the chemtrail conspiracy, where it is actually like large-scale population control on the American civilians? I mean, there have been large-scale sterilization programs historically. And also historically, they haven't really been done secretly. They've been done right. on vulnerable members of society. Right. Canada, people the, with developmental the, disabilities were sterilized right, against right, right. their will. Of course, it happened in the States. There were indigenous people sterilized against their will. But that wasn't done secretly or surreptitiously, remotely. Right. That was done deliberately and obviously. Right. Okay. It seems like a very untargeted way of going about it. All right, so we have weather control. We have some examples of that. We have examples in, in a sense of population control. Mind control? So the claim here is that there's a chemical in the trails that causes humans to be more docile or maybe more susceptible to suggestion. But, I mean, mind control, we're really getting far out. Have there ever been, like, massive mind control projects done by, say, the the American government? Surely not. Surely not. 
you know, I mean, if this is the first episode that you've <laughs> listened to of us, first of all, that, thank you for listening. Yes, and and that was that that comment from both of us was dripping with sarcasm. Not the thank you for listening part, but just the, our reflections on the American government's history over the last fifty to hundred years has led us to be rather cynical when it comes to questions of has the American government ever done anything bad? So where, where do where should we start? I mean. <laughs> <laughs> from just from the CIA, we have Bluebird, yep, Artichoke, yep, MK Ultra, yep, MK Often. Ooh, I don't know that one. I thought you'd be excited about that. What is it? Well, I'm still researching into it, but I did come across it in a, a Senate hearing where the CIA was apologizing for it. Okay. As far as I can tell, it was another way of trying to use chemicals in order to basically control people's minds. All right. Well, we'll get back to that one. And this happened after MK Ultra. Okay. Okay. So MK often is something that there's almost no evidence for, but the evidence that's there, it's clear that this was a program and this was a mind control program. Uh, it's got to be good if the CIA had to apologize. Yeah, like if they've admitted MK Ultra and MK often, they're like, uh. <laughs> shh, sorry about that. <laughs> so the U.S. military had projects Chapter, Third Chance, Derby Hat, Chatter, Castigate. Like there are so many of these. MK Ultra was just one of them. It was yeah. one of the largest. But it was still just one of them. But then I, I, I would almost want to broaden this here, too, and say, well, what exactly do we mean by mind control? Because if we're, you know, if, if, if you want to elicit certain behaviors from people, then, I mean, I guess advertisement is a form of mind control. I guess, sure. you know, the way casinos are organized into, you know, getting you lost and, and enabling you to spend all your money there is a form of mind control. So what we, what Nathan has listed is like the really strict conspiratorial kind of stuff. And then there's all these other border examples. Even something like the, the way that, uh, cell phone games are designed. Yeah, there's there's a, a, an aspect of mind control to those. Well, which I try and explain to my kids that they're designed like slot machines to get them addicted to the game and keep checking the phone and keep playing it. But it's a hard sell for somebody who has no understanding of slot machines. And also, you are and none of us are as interesting as a phone game. No, I know. And so when you're trying to compete with that, good luck. Yeah, thanks. It seems like then that. Weather control, population control, mind control, these aren't outside of the realm of possibility. Nope. We can't just discard this this conspiracy theory because it's absurd, because absurd things happen pretty frequently in the last hundred years. Yeah, and I think to to some extent, non-believers in conspiracies, if I can put it like that, sometimes come across as equally gullible as those who believe all conspiracies, because you just have to look at the history to discover that really a bizarre, scary, unethical conspiracies have been perpetrated by the American government and other governments on a large scale against civilians. Yeah, and there's just no denying that. No yeah. reasonable person can look at all of that evidence and say that it did not take place. Does so, so that mean, is, though... Exactly. So that, is this that, one of is them? Is this one of them or is this nonsense? Well, let's now look at some general issues that we have with this chemtrail hypothesis. Yeah. And there's one big one. I mean, the advantage of the chemtrail hypothesis is you can point to the sky and say, look to the sky, there they are. Yep. However, there's a problem, and that problem is the existence of contrails. Ah. So why don't we talk about that briefly? This is a really serious issue to the chemtrail conspiracy. Okay, so we have two concepts here. We have chemtrails and contrails. Both are 
portmanteaus. Is that correct? Yes, they are portmanteaus. <laughs> why, have, um, why have we gotten all fancy? I don't know. It's a fancy day. So these are kind of words that have been smashed together. So with chemtrail, you have chemicals and trail being merged. And with contrail, you have condensation and trail. Yeah. And so basically, when you have uh, an engine in the air, air gets heated up by the engine to about 600 degrees Celsius in a modern jet turbine engine. And then that hot, moist air gets expelled out the back where the atmosphere is about 60 degrees below zero Celsius. And so when that happens, that cold air condensates the hot, moist air into water droplets, basically making clouds. So that's what it is. And this has been happening for as long as we've had airplanes that have been flying high enough to be in that part of the atmosphere, even before jet planes. Like, you can go look at footage of World War II bombers flying at 22, 24,000 feet, and they're making massive contrails. The idea that this is somehow like a new phenomenon, that mm. the skies used to be clear and now we're seeing these white lines. No, as long as there have been planes flying in that part of the atmosphere, they have been generating these contrails. Okay, I take your point. But the conspiracy theorists who believe in the existence of chemtrails and that chemtrails are not simply contrails do themselves acknowledge the existence of contrails. So conspiracy theorists say, yes, uh, Nathan is totally right. This is a normal event in jet plane travel that these clouds of vapor materialize because of how hot the exhaust is and how cold the air is. But they say, those contrails dissipate within a couple of minutes. The, the signature of a chemtrail is that it sticks around for like, you know, more than half an hour. And often what will happen, they say, is that actually there'll be more planes that fly over, making almost like a chessboard pattern of contrails. These will merge into one large toxic cloud. So do they have anything there? Is there do they have a leg to stand on? Well, I mean, this is where we bring in something like Occam's razor. And Occam's razor is something that's often misused and misquoted as this idea that the simplest solution is, is probably the true one. Occam's razor is a general rule that says you shouldn't multiply entities beyond necessity. So what that means is if you have an explanation for something, you don't necessarily need to go looking for different explanations to explain what's already been explained. And the problem with the contrail-chemtrail distinction is, like, the contrail theory explains all of the different trails that we see. The ones that disappear almost immediately, well, that makes sense depending on the air conditions. If they linger for as long as 10 minutes sometimes, that can also happen with a contrail depending on what kind of weather conditions there are, depending if there's a strong wind or no wind at all. In fact, a contrail can even, if the uh, conditions are right, like slowly spread until it basically turns into a human-made cirrus cloud. But all of the kinds of contrails that we see in the sky can be explained through the concept of the contrail. We don't need the chemtrail to explain any of them. Okay, so the fact that some of them stick around longer than others is not indicative that they have some separate substance in them, but more about the general ambient weather conditions. So, for example, um, just as Nathan was saying, I, I had read somewhere that if there's a lot of humidity in the air, 
then the the trails will stick around longer because they won't evaporate. If the air is extremely dry, then they will evaporate very quickly. Exactly. And that's it. And so if you have a day that's already kind of hazy, that means that there's a lot of moisture already in the air, which means that on a hazy day, the contrails will stick around for longer. Right. So if you're observing that, you might think that the contrails are causing the haze, but actually it's the atmospheric conditions that are causing the long-lasting contrails and the haze. Okay. So contrails... That's a big problem. Is a... Is... Is... Yeah. For this theory. Okay. And there's more. Okay. Let's talk about airplanes. All right, let's... <laughs> you promised I've, that I've there would be no airplane talk I've in this I've always wanted to talk about airplanes on this podcast. All Here right. we go. Okay. You know what's super important about airplanes? That they fly. That's right. not fall out of the sky. That's right, Lee. Very, (laughs) very good. That is always what I think about when I'm in one. All right, I can skip the next 20 minutes of explanation (laughs) because you're already right there. Uh, The weight of aircraft is fanatically measured and accounted for for a bunch of reasons. The heavier the aircraft is, the more fuel you need. And so then the more fuel you need, the heavier the aircraft becomes. And so you have to reduce weight by taking out payload or shortening the distance that the plane can travel. Ah, that happened to me this summer. That's right. Yeah. When they took out my camping gear from the plane because the plane was too heavy, but they didn't tell me about it until I got out of the plane at the other end. They're like, yeah, we, we didn't bring your camping gear. Because it you. was too heavy. And it how was, much would that have weighed? It was, it was, well, I weighed it. It was under 50 pounds because that was the cutoff. So I, I, I can tell you that however much it weighed, it was less than 50 pounds. And it shows you how fanatical like the pilot and the engineer of the plane have to be about making sure that the plane doesn't weigh too much. The pilot also needs to know exactly how much their plane weighs on takeoff. And you might not think this is important, but it's even more important. They need to know exactly how much it weighs when it lands. Oh. And you would say, okay, well, taking off, you need to know how heavy it is in case it's too heavy to take off. It can also be too heavy to land. Really? Because the plane is designed to land at a certain weight. And structurally survive it. I mean, think about it. When you jump up in the air, that doesn't hurt you as much as when you land back on the ground again. And so if a plane is too heavy, it can take off. It can be heavy enough and still take off. But it's got to burn that weight off in the fuel in order to land again. Because if the plane lands and it's too heavy, it could damage the landing gear. It could damage the structure of the fuselage. It could damage the wings. Okay, you've given me a whole new thing to worry about in airplanes that I didn't even know I needed to be worried about. The landing was always my happy place. The landing's one of the most dangerous parts. I was like, I'm getting safer by the moment, but apparently not. So the pilot needs to know exactly what that plane lands. Okay. Exactly what that plane weighs when it lands. Otherwise, like you're, you're landing in the dark, basically. And you figure out how much your plane weighs by calculating how much fuel you've burned. Okay. And so if you have burned a bunch of fuel and there's also a ton of other weight missing, you're going to notice that. Okay. Uh, And you're not going to land properly. So that seems like an issue because it would mean that every pilot would have to know that something bizarre was happening on their plane. Right. Okay. There's no way that a pilot could be shooting off tons of chemicals or biological agents without being aware of it. I see. I see. So they would. this means they would have to be in on it because otherwise they would not be able to fly the plane, plane properly. Yeah, because they'd say, why doesn't this plane weigh what it's supposed now, to weigh? Now, why is that a problem? I mean, so fine. So there's like pilots who are in on the conspiracy. So what? Well, I mean, this is one of the 
big flaws of a lot of conspiracies like this. So think about all the pilots that would have to be in on it and also would have to agree to go along with it. And then also mechanics, navigators, engineers, luggage handlers, chemists, biologists, ground crew, accountants, executives. Right. How many people are we talking about here? Yeah, and this follows a general rule that we've talked about before, which is the more people who have to keep quiet about a conspiracy, the, the shorter that conspiracy will be able to be kept quiet. Yeah, because we're bad at keeping secrets. Yeah, and it's not. I think it's not just about we're bad at keeping secrets. It's there's like personal animosities that get involved. Like it isn't even about spilling the beans on a big secret for the public good. It's sometimes just you hate your boss. Yeah, if you're a pilot and you're fired for like drinking on the job or something. Yeah. Why like, wouldn't you be like, oh yeah? Well, yeah. I'm going to blow the whistle on this massive chemtrail program. Exactly. Yeah, and that's that's hundreds of thousands of people in every country in the world. It, it just, that's, how would you possibly ever keep them all quiet? Hmm. Okay. Because, of course, planes fly internationally, and at every airport, they're inspected by dozens of maintenance personnel. If the, if the chemicals or the biological agents were powerful enough to be effective after being distributed at 600 miles an hour at 30,000 feet up, imagine how dangerous those chemicals would be condensed. Oh, that's an, another good... Point. So you'd, you'd have to handle those on the ground by like highly trained experts wearing hazmat suits. And I feel like someone's going to notice that. Right. Someone's going to say, hey, why are those guys treating that giant vat like it's radioactive? Speaking about the, the, the weight issue, one of the memes that I've seen is actually related to testing planes for weight. So um, there exist pictures of the interior of a fuselage exactly passenger planes which no longer look like passenger planes they have all the seats removed and what what has been there's big barrels and and this looks really sinister and ominous sure um but what what it is is these are filled with water and then the water can be moved from one barrel to another with a pump to uh help train the pilots on how the weight distribution within the cabin might fall, you know, depending on who your passengers are. It's a bit heavier on one side. It's a bit heavier on the other. And so they use this as a training exercise. But it looks like, and has been used as evidence for this chemtrail conspiracy, where it's like, look at all these barrels of poison that they're shooting out all over the place. Yeah, I've also seen footage of clearly some kind of uh, some kind of vapor or liquid or something, not coming out of the engines like a contrail, but coming out of like a pipe or a hose on the wing itself. Ah, I, I discovered what that was. And what is it? It is uh, jet fuel. And so sometimes it's 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 uh, not great when this happens because it's, it's really kind of a, a sort of an emergency situation, but sometimes pilots need to jettison large amounts of fuel in order to get the weight right um, for landing or because of some other issue that, you know, that makes it dangerous to carry that much fuel on board. So what they do is they jettison. It comes out, as you say, it comes out the wing. So yeah. you can actually find YouTube videos of people filming this. And that looks exactly like you would imagine the chemtrail, were it real, it would look like that. Yeah. I mean, it, would, it wouldn't come out of the engines. That doesn't make any sense anyway. Right. And so if I looked at the window and I saw a tube with like just gallons of something flying out of yeah. it, I think that's weird. But as we discussed before, 
If your plane takes off and you're about to fly over the ocean, but then a passenger has a medical emergency and you have to land immediately, the plane is too heavy to land at that point because it hasn't burned off enough fuel, so they've just got to dump it off into the air. Right. Uh, these are all sort of issues then. And there's one more issue, and that's Edward Snowden. Yeah. Famous whistleblower. Who came up in a completely different episode about Russian hacking, and now is back about chemtrails. And now he's back. And he was being interviewed on a podcast, and the podcaster asked him, you've seen all this secret government stuff. What have you seen about chemtrails? And what did Snowden say? He said that he looked for it. He, he really did a search for it, and that actually surprised me. And he came up with nothing. Yeah. He's like, no, there, there wasn't anything in there. So those are all general problems. Now, with- uh, sorry, just to interrupt, but apparently he had like really good access. So it wasn't like, you know, this was just he didn't have enough security clearance. He was able to see all kinds of compromising data. I mean, that's why he's in big trouble. That's, that's why he can't come back. He released all kinds of compromising data. And he was like, yeah, no, there is. this was not part of it. As point blank, did you find any evidence? No, no yeah. evidence for chemtrails. So that's a bunch of general issues with chemtrails. Now let's look at the specific issues. We talked about weather control. That's the most reasonable of the three hypotheses. There have been proposals to distribute aluminum oxide or diamond dust, which is pretty awesome, in the upper atmosphere in order to reflect some of the sun's rays and minimize the effect of global warming. And I think a lot of people argue that maybe this is already happening. It's already happening with these chemtrails. But as far as I can tell... Well, there have been these proposals, they haven't really carried out any successful experimentation in it yet. Right. In 2012, there was an experiment planned in England in which a balloon would release 150 liters of just water into the air one kilometer up as a kind of proof of concept, but that was canceled in part due to a lack of guidelines or protocols for that kind of experiment. In 2018, there was a Harvard University experiment they were going to release 100 grams that's like an, like an aspirin bottle's worth. Yeah, it's not a lot. That is not much. Of calcium carbonate into the atmosphere 20 kilometers above the ground. And then three years later, they finally were going to do this in Sweden in 2021. But there was such a massive public backlash against that experiment of releasing that 100 grams into the atmosphere that they were like, okay, we're going to put this off pending further societal engagement with the Swedish public. Right. It, it seems like there has been some interest in this, but there haven't officially been any kind of successful testing. But I would argue that there is basically weather manipulation happening. It's not happening because of chemtrails. It's happening because of the contrails. Are you talking about climate change? Yeah, exactly. Okay, so this is a sort of unintentional weather manipulation or climate manipulation, which is different from weather. So the theory being that there's a lot of airplanes they are adding clouds to the sky, essentially. Yeah. And they're adding a lot. And if you if you add all up what they're adding, they're adding quite a bit of... It's going to change the environment. Yeah. So, so that is good. I mean, in, back in 99, in 1999, the International Panel on Climate Change, the IPCC, argued that human-made cirrus clouds that are caused by persistent contrails could potentially alter the climate through something called positive radiative forcing. Right. Basically increasing the amount of heat that remains in the atmosphere from the sun's rays. Right. Uh, the science isn't like completely settled on this yet. They're saying it's a possibility, 
but they're not entirely sure. What the signs I had seen said it was negligible, but I am not in a position to determine that. Mm-hmm. What is not negligible, of course, is the carbon dioxide emitted right. by the jet engines, which is considerable. Right. And also, of course, contributes to the greenhouse effect. And I'm sure, and again, um, foregrounding that we are not medical experts, as well as not aviation scientists and things, but surely this could also have an impact on human health. Sure. Like respiratory health, pulmonary yeah. health. So in some vague way that is not at all intended by conspiracy theorists of chemtrails, there is some marginal truth to some of the claims when understood in a specific way. But it, but it's not a deliberate action that's being done to serve that end. Right. It's, a, it's like an accidental it's, side effect. It's like a side effect. Yeah. Okay. All right, so let's go to population control. If you were distributing a biological or a chemical agent at 30,000 feet, I mean, that's pretty much going to guarantee that it's going to dilute to the point of disappearing. And it's going to be impossible to target it over a specific population because hmm. it's just going to blow all over the place and thin out. We do have airplanes that drop chemical tra- uh, trails. They're called crop dusters. Right. But in order for them to do it effectively, those guys have got to fly it like 10 feet off the ground. Yeah. And it's a good point about both chemical and biological warfare. One of the big problems with this are, you know, variables like wind. Yeah. So you drop your chemical weapon and suddenly the wind changes and it's you guys who are breathing in Agent Orange and not, you know, the other guys. That's why if I'm an evil government, I'm not poisoning the air. I'm going to poison the water supply. Exactly. Because that's directed. Yeah. And it's more effective and it's not going to be as diluted. Yeah. Come on, guys, get your heads in the game. Right. So sometimes I like that approach, Nathan, of just, you know, how would you actually do this? Like, how how would we organize a conspiracy along these lines? And I feel like you're right. Spraying chemicals in the air is maybe the least effective way. And we talked about some of the sketchy stuff like sea spray or the subway experiment. What's important to know is that sea spray wasn't done from an airplane. It was done from a ship at sea level. Yeah. The subway experiment was done like on the ground with those light bulbs full of bacteria. It wasn't done from flying over New York and spraying. There's one big problem with every population control conspiracy. Mm. So since the mid 90s, when this theory first shows up, the Earth's population has gone from 5.7 billion to almost 8 billion. Yeah. If there is a massive secret program to depopulate the planet... They're not doing a good job. So the population control one, that seems like it's got a lot of specific issues. The mind control one, my first question is, through what mechanism? Yeah. Like, what particular chemicals could have the property of mind-altering the population? Well, I guess if you want docility, you would you would use some kind of anti-anxiety. And you'd put it in the drinking water. Well, of course, yes. So, mm-hmm. I mean, how many anti-anxieties would you need spraying them at 30,000 feet or yeah, 60,000 feet? And, and who takes an aerosol anti-anxiety med? Right. If you could put any drug in the, in the drinking water, what would you put in? <laughs> um, to make a better society. To make a better society, low doses of LSD. I was going to say psilocybin. Yeah, okay. Yeah, basically the same thing. I don't know. Is, is psilocybin water-soluble? Well, I mean, we're not going to go through with this anyway. (laughs) And this is the other thing, and this is something we were talking about before we started recording. If you are concerned about mind control, don't look to the sky. Look to your screens. Yeah. Well, 
And this is actually another theme that I find really interesting in a lot of these conspiracies. It's always the government. And we've talked again about the problem of that concept. But what's never mentioned are corporate entities. Mm-hmm. You know, is the ones is, to buy stuff? Yeah, the the exactly the ones who are motivated to manipulate behavior in specific ways. And there's a lot of evidence that our phones uh, change our behaviors. Yeah, in ways that benefit the people who sell us the apps and the phones and things like that, or even the people who are selling our behavior modification. Right. Yes. Yeah, we've got propaganda, advertising. We've got that unholy union of data valence and social media. Hmm. This is where this is the level at which mind control operates, Today. not releasing some kind of weird chemical 30,000 feet above the city. Yeah. That's also, I mean, we, we need to parse it a little bit because the, 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 I think some of the lessons that come out of MKUltra is that that sci-fi dystopian vision of mind control is not possible. At least not in any of the methods that have been tried. You can break a person, but you can't really control their mind. Yeah. That, that was one of the main lessons from MKUltra, I think. Yeah. And then eventually that was... It, they didn't abandon it because it was unethical. Right. It just... They didn't care. that They knew it was unethical. Yeah, it just didn't work well. It just wasn't working well enough. That's why it was abandoned. Although MK often, that we'll have to look into. So what does science say about all this? There was an attempt in 2016 from Shearer, West, Caldera, and Davis, academics who published an article titled Quantifying Expert Consensus Against the Existence of a Secret Large-Scale Atmospheric Spraying Program, or SLAP. What's amazing about this article is that they were not optimistic that their approach would change anyone's mind, and they opened the article by saying, Our goal is not to sway those already convinced that there is a secret large-scale spraying program, or SLAP, who often reject counter-evidence as further proof of their theories but rather to establish a source of objective science that can inform public discourse. So what they did was they found 77 independent scientists, atmospheric chemists, and geochemists, and they showed the atmospheric chemists a bunch of photographs that were often used as evidence of chemtrails. Uh, One photo showed three trails, two of them thinner than the other, as evidence for different levels of chemtrail spraying, but the experts all said that this was likely due to different levels of humidity in the areas the planes were flying through, different altitudes of the planes, and possibly difference in the efficiency of the plane's engines. One photo showed a single contrail that had a gap in it, as evidence that the chemtrail had been switched off and then on again. But the experts suggested that the plane had simply flown through a pocket of warmer, drier air. As far as the common claim that contrails last longer now than they used to, The experts claimed that this was possible, but likely due to larger and more powerful engines producing more water vapor, and that also planes fly at a higher altitude now. The geochemists were asked if they had seen increased amounts of barium, aluminum, and strontium over the course of their careers. A small percentage said that they had seen a minor increase, but that it was more likely attributed to changes in industrial and agricultural processes. Okay, so there's no there there. This, this is a group of non-affiliated scientists who are coming up with essentially the same explanation as the institutionalized scientists working for NASA or whoever. Yeah. Okay. And so what we're left with with the chemtrail uh, conspiracy is, I think, that it might not be true. Right. Okay. Yeah, no, I, I think so, too. So one of the questions I have when we get to this point in our investigation— 
you started out with talking about the Tuskegee syphilis experiment as one that we both uh, feel has a lot of evidence supporting that it actually happened. 100% true. I don't know if there's anybody who says it isn't true, including the U.S. government who perpetrated it. No honest person would. No. So then you have those ex- those those examples like JFK where you're like okay something went down but it's 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 a bit more complicated when you really look into the 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 facts. And then of course we've encountered these kinds of conspiracies where you and I after you know trying to give it its due and and doing our due diligence we come out the other end and say no this is not a thing. And then I ask the question for myself well, why are people into it? Like, what what is the appeal to something that, and I I, I would put in this category, uh, the flat Earth conspiracy, uh, lizard people, the you know lizard people in the basement of Denver Airport, and and many others besides JFK Jr. coming back to life. Right, JFK Jr. coming back to life. Um, that's a more recent one now that comes out of the QAnon scene. What what is the appeal? Uh, what is the reason that a conspiracy like this, which is pretty easily debunked, and which doesn't seem to really hold up logically, you know, if you want to do population control, use the water. If you if you want to do mind control, use cell phones. Uh, what provides its staying power? Well, I think for one thing you can look up into the sky and become suspicious of what you see. Like this is one of those ones that you can actually see quote unquote evidence for. Hmm. And, and that's powerful when we see something with our eyes, like we believe it. And if somebody tells us what we're seeing is a chemtrail, then we are going to see a chemtrail. So I think that's one of the reasons this one sticks around. I think another reason that it sticks around is because as we have spent so much time discussing over the years, governments have gotten up to some shady business. So, and, and what's funny is that, uh, like, our conclusion wasn't that, no, they wouldn't do this because it's wrong. Right. We said, no, they wouldn't do this because it wouldn't work. Right. So is this more about a kind of a a, crit, a critical position that some people take vis-a-vis their government and their feelings, say, of alienation and things like that, where they're like, the system is bogus, you yeah. know, it's not... And so they become then suspicious of all kinds of things or become liable to believe conspiratorial interpretations because, yeah, I mean, that just fits the, the model, I guess. And then you look up onto a blue sky on a nice day, and there it is. Right. 